So at my house, we ha- have movie nights. We have a popcorn machine, and we, we put the, the popcorn in there, and it pops, and then we watch a movie. So the other night, we, well, I've taken my boys through the Star Wars thing. Uh, I don't get it, but I wanted them to at least be exposed to it now so they don't overcorrect correct in, in high school and start dressing up like things. So it's like, all right, here's Star Wars. And they were just as bored as I was, and so that was great. Oh, Star Wars dig. Okay. Just don't understand the weird characters. Okay. But the other night, we watched Toy Story. How many of you have seen Toy Story? Now we're getting into some good movies. You know the song, You've Got a Friend? That, that's a, it's great. And then they make adults cry, and it's, it's a wonderful movie. Uh, it's not as bad as Up. The first five minutes of Up, I watched on the plane on our honeymoon. And I leaned over to Carrie, and I'm weeping, going, you can't die. It was just, that's the rule. Okay, so we're watching Toy Story, and I'm watching it for the umpteenth time. I don't know what it is, but uh, how many times it's been, but we're watching it, and there's this scene. Uh, It's been a few times, but this time I noticed it. It was when uh, Woody, Tom Hanks, the cowboy, for those of you who haven't seen it, and Buzz are still getting to know each other. And Buzz has this false persona, like he's actually a space ranger, and he thinks he can fly. And so it's it's early in the movie, and and. Woody has just had it up to his top of his hat, right? And he looks at Buzz and says, you're not a space ranger. And you can kind of hear Tom Hanks' crackly voice in this. You're not a space ranger. You're an action figure. You're a child's plaything. You remember the scene? And then Buzz uh, can't even comprehend that because this is not for Buzz. He's the, you know, to infinity and beyond. He's the action figure. His reality is skewed. His identity is completely off base, and he can't understand it at first. But then later in the scene, Buddy starts to realize, or Buddy, Buzz, starts to realize, Buddy the Elf is what we watched at Christmas. But Buzz starts to realize that there's truth in Woody's statement. And so he becomes sad, and he's grief-stricken, and he's, his head's down, and, and he's, he's kind of giving up on life. And then he admits it. I'm just a stupid, and I had to say to the kids that they can say stupid, but we can't say stupid. I'm just a stupid little insignificant toy. Remember this? And then Woody confronts Buzz, and he starts talking about Andy. And he starts saying, yeah, but Andy loves you. And, he's, and he looks at, he's, he loves us both so much. And then he says, you must not be thinking clearly. And he looks over, look over in that house, Woody says, there's a kid who thinks you're the greatest. And it's not because you're a space ranger. It's because you're his. And then if you remember, Buzz then lifts his foot. And on the bottom of his foot says, Andy. And then Buzz gets it. It's in permanent black ink. And now Buzz knows that he belongs to somebody. And then Buzz's whole persona changes at that moment. He goes... He knows his owner, and he smiles, and it gives him this new self-worth, a new identity, a new purpose, and a new calling. Pixar knows how to tell the truth, right? There's, there's some immense, deep stuff that comes from, this, from that moment right there. And I like to think that if the Apostle John had Pixar movies like Toy Story and others, he would have probably put a clip in there where we can watch this because this proves exactly his point in chapter three because he's trying to illustrate to this church uh, these seven churches back in those days and it echoes through history to our church today 
that uh, wherever you find yourself, you belong to somebody else. And that belonging shapes who you are. It shapes who you will become. And most importantly, it shapes what you should do now. And we're in this series of First uh, John. It's a five-week series. We're on week three, so we're right smack in the midst of it. Uh, but for the last two chapters, John has been trying to get uh, his people in these churches uh, to realize their calling, realize who they belong to, and that because they're with Jesus, in the first chapter it says, sin is no longer an option, that there is sin in this world, and we shouldn't do it. We can't go accepting sin. We can't go saying that it's okay to sin. Sinful lifestyles are not appropriate for those who follow God. And in chapter 2, he says, he starts going on, so this is what we do when we sin. And then in chapter 1, he says, when you do sin, because we all do, there's confession and we have Christ who, is, who forgives us from all unrighteousness. And he's our mediator. So we have repentance and forgiveness. And then chapter 2, Dylan talked about last week. And it said that one of the ways we can avoid sin is by surrounding ourselves with a community of other believers that encourage us, that, that help us grow, that, that hold us accountable. And so in chapter 3, the question still lingers. If I'm a child of God and I'm not supposed to sin anymore, how do I stop sinning? Which is a question that we all ask because we all sin and hopefully you feel bad about it. And you're like, how do I stop this? And so John begins chapter 3 with the end of chapter 2. And telling us the best way to stop the sinning is to realize to whom you belong. And once you realize to who you belong to, it changes your whole outlook on your life. He shows them step by step. So we'll start in in verse 28. It says this. And the whole point is finding where you belong shapes who you are. In 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 verse 28. And now, dear children, John says, continue in him. The word continue is this word meno. Hold on to that. It, it means a whole array of things, but it pops up about 12 times in this next chapter. Uh, it says continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So John has this pattern of speaking, or, he, or he's establishing this pattern uh, that had to do with the word continue. In John's gospel, which is appropriately named John, uh, he, he goes, and in, in chapter 15, he uses the word meno, and he says, abide. He says, when you have a relationship with Jesus, have a relationship with Jesus. Stick close, abide, spend time with Jesus. And when you abide with Jesus, he then says, there'll be fruit. Here he uses the word meno as it means continue. Later, he'll say, stay close or walk with. What he's doing, it starts in chapter 15, is you have a relationship with Jesus. It's about ongoing transformation. And now in in 1 John, it becomes about a daily walk with Jesus. And we look at it, there's an order to it. First, we have to know who Jesus is. We have to know the truth about what Jesus came to do for us. He died for our sins, and we trust his atoning work of the cross. That's John 15. Second of the pattern is this confession leads us to be born of him. That's in verse 29 here. We are given a new nature in Christ. We are born again. That's where the term comes from for born again Christians into his family. And then third, in verse 28, we enjoy a daily relationship with him, drawing on Jesus' strength and living out the newness of his grace in our righteous way of living. The order is important. The belief leads to birth, 
which leads to transformation. Belief leads to belonging, and it results in a new way of life. It works in reverse, too. The practice of righteousness, the practice of holy living, stems not from what you do, but where you belong. Since believers are born of God, and God is righteous, we will ultimately look like God, or look like Jesus. That's the goal. Here's what I mean. For better or worse, you are somewhat like your parents. Some people should not tell their spouse that they're like a certain parent because that is an instant fight. But when you're a family, you look alike. You have certain characteristics. You all probably realize that Olivia and Rachel are related, right? When you see me with my brothers, though they have hair, uh, we're related. We have the same mannerisms. It caught up to me. It catches up to me every time I sneeze. My dad had a very descriptive, I don't know if that's the right word, but when he sneezed, everyone in our house knew that was dad. It was very, I mean, it was the way he sneezed. And then he would clear his throat and it would go for about 25 seconds. (laughs) We could hear it from across the church growing up. When we were misbehaving, there would be a throat clear. And I think it went that long so that my brothers would realize that they were doing something wrong and snap out of it because they were the troublemakers. I wasn't. But uh, but we, we, I heard myself sneeze the other day, and I went, whoa, sounded like my dad. My dad also had this pause in his talk where he would say, well, and then he would continue. I was talking to Carrie yesterday, and I went, well, and I went, oh, it's my dad. I also have traits from my mother. She is, uh, not her height, she's, she's shorter, um, She's watching online. She'll text me about that. She is a very quick-witted, sarcastic woman. It's just the way she is. It's wonderful. I think she's hilarious. Uh, uh, she, I get my sarcasm from my mom. She would like me to say I get my wonderful, glowing personality and good looks from my mom, and we'll just say that so mom's happy. But we resemble each other when it comes to our family. I see it in my boys. Uh, Judah and Caleb have traits of Carrie and I. And though they're still young and it's still forming, Caleb has my personality. And it, it's, it's frightening how much he has my personality. Judah mirrors Carrie. And it's always up for a good time, carefree, fun-loving, not a care in the world, even though the world is falling apart. But Judah and Carrie are like, eh, whatever, we're having fun. That's how they are. But we see it in our families. Like it or not, your characteristics are passed down from you from your family, to you. Just as in our genetics, we are in the family of God, therefore God passes his nature to his children. John says that. We are children of God. We've been brought into this family. And when we are brought into this family, the expectation is that we will look like our father. We will look like God. We will act like the family does. When we believe in Christ... There's something happens. There's a bunch of things that happen to you immediately. You're sealed. You're gifted. You're forgiven. You're justified. You're in the process of being sanctified. All these theological terms that we could spend weeks on. All of this happens to you in that instant. One of those things that happens is you are now adopted into his family. Everything about your past is gone. Everything about your future now is God's. 
All of your past transgressions, all of your past sins are now absorbed in the person of Christ. And we'll get to this later. Paul says that everything past about you is hidden in a little tiny box and placed in Jesus's pocket. So when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. He sees his children. And this is the idea that shapes much of what John is going to continue talking about in the next two chapters and even in the next two books of 2nd and 3rd John. Uh, he says this in, 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 in verse, or chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And then there's a tone shift. And it says, and that is what we are. You could almost, I mean, if I'm, if I'm watching John, he, this is not a letter. This is a sermon that someone transcribed. He's probably doing one of these things. That is what we are. That's who you are. Do you see the love that God has for you, that he's taken you, brought you into his family, and given you a new name, a new identity, a new, erased everything about your past, and says, this is who you are now moving forward. It's almost like he's shouting this. This is in your DNA. You belong to God. This is who you are. And more importantly, you're a child of God. You belong to God. Belonging shapes who you are, but it also determines whom you will become. And this is what John is getting to. There's nothing you can do to remove the permanent marker from the bottom of your shoe that says God's, except for this marker is written across your heart. And he says, you are mine. You are bought. You are paid for. You are in his family. And there's nothing you can do to remove that from your life. He becomes your father. Not the kind of father that shames or discourages or abandons or or belittles or abuses, but the kind of father who builds up his children. Jesus talks about this in the Gospels. He says, we serve a father that's going to give you what you ask for. And if you ask for bread, he's not going to give you a rock. He's not going to give you bad things. God wants to bless us. Not in a prosperity thing saying your life is going to be beautiful and wonderful the whole time. No, we're still going to have troubles. But you have a father in heaven who loves you wants to guide you. And when needed, there is discipline towards holiness. He's a good father. God is our loving father and you are his child. He cares for you. And most importantly, as Isaiah says, he delights in you. You bring a smile to his face. This is a basic truth about our salvation, but it's one of the biggest truths that we have a hard time with. And and, and we easily forget this. It's the best truth but we, we don't remember this. And partly because the enemy, Satan, wants us to forget this. It wants you to forget to whom you belong. Satan wants you not to realize that you belong to God. Satan wants you to realize that, or to think that you are just worthless scum, like a Buzz Lightyear create, uh, a toy that isn't really a space ranger. And this is how he does this. And this is important. We think we belong to a host of other things before we actually realize and understand that the core of us is belonging to God. So we put a bunch of other things before our true identity. It goes like this. I'm a blank Christian. Okay? So fill in the blank with that. I'm a blank Christian. You can fill it in with whatever position you want. I'm a Democrat Christian. I'm a Republican Christian. I'm a pro-life Christian, I'm a pro-choice Christian, I'm a straight Christian, I'm a gay Christian, I'm a progressive Christian, I'm an evangelical Christian, or am I a conservative Christian? Have we heard this before? We start putting these titles before who we are. 
And the problem is this. When we place any identity before our primary identity, we end up living into that false identity. The little word that goes in that blank will end up defining you more than the next word. And that's where we get off base. We end up becoming more like our positions rather than our position in Christ. If we put anything before whom we belong to, we'll end up becoming like that thing more than we'll become like Jesus. And this is what John's trying to get at. You were born into the family of God. So first and foremost, you are Christ's. You are in the family of God. You are his child. You've been taken from whom you used to belong to, and you've been adopted into his family. You've taken his prestige, and everything about Jesus is 100% true of you. This is where you belong. Everything else becomes secondary to us becoming more like Christ. So that little blank needs to go away. I am Christ's. And then everything else flows from that primary identity of who you are. John says it this way, dear friends, now that we are children of God, what we will be has not been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. This is this incredible fact that follows, it follows John's logic well. If we believers are born into God's family, it makes sense that the trajectory of our transformation will be more like Jesus. And as God's kids, we will one day be like Jesus himself. We will be like the Son of God. Uh, do you remember what happened in the sixth day of creation? Anyone want to go for it? What happened on day six? Genesis one twenty-seven. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In Genesis one twenty-eight. it restates that fact. In the image of God, you were created. That's the key part of that verse. Inside of you right now, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're planning to do this afternoon, is the image of God. This is the spirit that resides in you. You possess God's image. Everyone who breathes air into their lungs possesses God's image. That never goes away. No matter how totally deprived you think you are, that never goes away. Follow me here. So when the story of creation, and this will make sense, hopefully it made sense earlier when I was reading through this, but when, when creation happened, we were created in God's image, then what happened? God rested. The next day or a couple days later, Adam and Eve were walking around. Sin took place. And instead of living a, a self-controlled worship with communion and relationship with God, the person who you look like, the person who you're supposed to represent to the rest of creation, we are God's image so that the rest of creation can see the image of God in us and realize there's a creator because we look like our dad. That was marred. Sin stopped it. And it twisted us. It took us from a God-centered world into a self-centered world. Sin kept us and keeps us from being who God intended us to be from the very beginning. On that day in the garden when we sinned, and I'm not going to say who sinned first because that's just another fight over lunch. When, when humankind sinned, we sinned against the way we were formed. We sinned against the way that we were supposed to be. The sin was never God's intention. He gave us the option but he didn't want us to choose it. 
then at that point, we belonged to sin. Why? Because we said and we aligned ourselves with sin instead of the image that's created in us. This is the power of the cross. Because at the cross, Christ provided the only way back to what we were intended to be like. With the death and resurrection of, the, of Christ, it put us back on track to being like Christ. When you believe in Christ, the Spirit of God awakens the image of God in your life, and you are transformed, and his love becomes a practical outflow of your experience. This is why Paul says in various chapters, uh, various verses, uh, uh, glory is what we're going towards. We are moving from glory to glory, and soon we'll see with unveiled faces what Jesus is actually like. Uh, when he says this, Paul means that in God, we will see God's nature, we will see God's character, we'll see God's goodness, and that holiness will be exp- uh, reflected in our lives. And his love will be that practical outflow of who we are. All the shortcomings, all the weaknesses that we endure today will be gone tomorrow. The life of Christ swallows up all of those about you and puts it into him. Paul says in Romans 8 that Christ was the last Adam, the better Adam, that erased the previous Adam that sinned. And he gave us a new birth and a new creation and allowed us to turn back to where we belong. We belong to God and we are becoming more and more like Christ. Therefore, what John's getting at here is relating to others and relating to ourselves. We need to relate that way from who we actually are, not to who we used to be. In seminary, we like to debate a a lot about weird topics and theologies, and and we go round and round and uh, who's right and who's wrong. And one of the debates that we got to was who our identity, and in the theological terms, it's called harmardiology, which is the study of mankind. And and so the question was this, are we sinners who sometimes act like saints, or are we saints who sometimes sin? And we went back and forth, and and some of my classmates were absolutely wrong, because I think the scripture is clear on this one. Because when we say yes to Jesus, Paul says that our lives are hidden with Christ in God, and we are becoming shaped to the image of Christ. John says that we are children of God. And then there's this. Nowhere in the scripture is a person who believes in Christ called a sinner. Paul starts all his letters the same way. I, Paul, bondservant of Jesus Christ, blah, 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 blah. To the sinners in Ephesus. (laughs) No. To the sinners in in Corinthians, maybe. But they were kind of weird. But, you know, even those people. He says to the saints in whatever city he's writing to. In scriptures, you're no longer referred to as a sinner. You're a saint, which is pretty high and lofty title, right? You can nudge the person next to you if you want and say you're a saint if you want. Uh, But it'd be nice. You're a saint. You've been bought with a price. Paul says in Romans 6, you are no longer a slave to sin. Sin doesn't own you anymore. The chains of sin and shame are removed. There's no need to refer to yourself as a sinner. We now have the ability to live our lives in Christ as we were intended to be as children of God. Not anything that comes before the word Christian, but God's child first and God's children live a certain way. So John's point is this, lean into where you belong. 
You belong with Christ. You belong to God. Live that way. And verse 4, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. John says that once you realize your future glorification, where you're going, the trajectory of your life, I'm going to be there at some point. Once you realize where you're going, you should steer away from lawlessness. You should steer away from sin. Being glorified tomorrow should not lead to rebellion today. Uh, and it's, it, it's the idea, and I think I've talked about it here, of eschatological realism, which is a fun word to say, right? Eschatological means end times, so future events. When you study some parts of Daniel and Revelation, it's eschatology, end times. Realism is the idea of today. And so it's, if you put it together and break it down, it's living the future part of who you are now in today's context. And this, the story that comes to mind whenever this passage comes up or wherever this idea comes up is this thought. If I were to see in my junior high and high school years my wedding picture, how much would that have changed my life? If you were to see in those years, those awkward years of junior high and high school, where your future is, how much would that change your life? Would it change your decisions? Absolutely. Would it change who you dated? Yep probably wouldn't have dated. Would it change what you looked at on the, on the internet? For me, it would have. Would it have changed how many people I tried to become my be, befriend? Uh, yes, everything about those pain points of me trying to figure out or feel loved would have been erased. Why? Because I would see down the road, and it was a ways down the road. It was like 15 years later. I got married when I was 30. I would see that at that point, I would be fully loved who I am, where I've been, and where I'm going. And it changes your today because of tomorrow. The pressure to get other people to accept you is gone. In other words, once you see what you are becoming, John can't imagine that you keep on going, living the same way. Instead, John says these words, abide, continue, Uh, In verse 7, he says, don't be led astray. In verse 8, he says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And what what was the destroying the devil's work? To take away the sin that got you to think that you were somewhere else in the first place. In verse 9, no one born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Now, it doesn't mean that you won't sin. It means what John's getting at is this ongoing, habitual sin lifestyle, an intentional practice of sin. So John's point is this, pursue holiness, not in the way where you think you have to earn your belonging, not in the way that you have to earn God's approval, but rather live like you already have it because you do. You abide, you continue, we remain because of who we belong to not to earn that belonging, but because of it. So how do you know if you're pursuing holiness? Pursuing holiness by ridding yourself of untrue speech. How do we pursue holiness? We stop lying. Stop lying to ourselves. Stop lying to other people. Be people of truth. 
People struggle to know in this world, who are they going to trust? We can't trust the media. We, we, we can't trust news agencies. We can't trust people in power uh, because there's always a, a different motive. Uh, we look at them with suspicion. We can't always trust friends, unfortunately. There's deception everywhere. So one of the ways you and I can lean into where we belong and pursue holiness is to be countercultural to this. Tell the truth. Truth-telling. Another way that we pursue holiness is by ridding yourselves of anger. Don't let anger control your life. It's okay to be angry. Jesus got angry. Paul gets angry. There's tons of anger. Anger's okay. The key is here, don't let it control you. Don't let it define you. Anger turns, it's like too much salt in your food. It just turns everything bitter. And then you become cynical. And then cynicism leads to just outright hatred. And so don't let hatred define your life. The next way is by, uh, we can pursue holiness is by ridding ourselves of laziness. Putting off thieving and put on honest work. The Proverbs teach this. Lazy people irritate their employers like vinegar to the teeth or smoke in the eyes. Christians are to become hardworking people. This is how we pursue holiness. We work hard. We pursue holiness by ridding yourselves of ourselves of corrupting speech. We are to put on speech that builds people up, imparts grace. We don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, there's people say this, well, then we can't, we can't tell jokes. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that when we talk to each other, we encourage each other. We, we, we laugh together. We don't take ourselves too seriously. We don't put each other down. We have grace. Another way we pursue holiness is, is by ridding ourselves of bitterness, wrath, slander. Those things are like drinking poison, the adage says, and expecting the other person to feel the effects. You're only hurting yourself when you participate in them. And in case you're wondering all of these things, you're going, gosh, Brad, you're a stiff. Uh, that's harsh. Back, back off a little bit. All of these things are lifted from Ephesians chapter 4. This is how Paul says we are to live out of our new identity. And Ephesians is broken into two parts. The first two chapters are, this is who you are. The third chapter is kind of a, 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 a transition. And the fourth chapter goes, now this is how you should live based upon who you are. We pursue holiness. Like John, Paul tells us, who we are and who we'll become, and that shapes who we are today. The New Testament is filled with, with teachings like this. They help us pursue holiness. We pursue holiness not for God's approval. We already have it. We abide in Christ, so we will see fruit. And Jesus says, you'll know they're my people. You know they'll belong to me. You know they're part of my family when you see the fruits from their lives. And so the question to us is, does what we're doing, does how we are living match up with the results that God and you are actually hoping for? Or is there sections in your life where you've said, no, I'm going to be this person and the fruit has turned bad or sour? Paul gives us a, a little clue on this. He says, the fruits of the Spirit, which when you live according, when you abide with Jesus, when you live into your true identity are this, love, joy, peace, forbearance, or some translations might say patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there is no such law. Then he continues, those who belong, same word, to Christ, 
have been crucified with the flesh and its passions and its desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Rather than grabbing on to something else to define us, we grab on to who Jesus is. Uh, one day it was Christmas time and I went Christmas shopping with my dad and my dad would get all of his Christmas shopping done on December 23rd. He wouldn't start until then and then he would be finished at the end of the day. It was a mad day. So one time he came home to drop off the first load and said, Brad, come with me. And I went with him to the mall. And my dad was an incredibly fast walker. And we were, uh, and I, I had little legs at the time, and I tried to keep up. I was probably Judah's age, maybe six or seven. And, and we were in the mall, the Brea Mall. It was packed. And my dad shops like I do. There's a mission, and I'm going to get that, and I'm going to leave. None of this going to Target and meandering. That's just a waste of time. We're going to go in like a sniper, one shot, one kill, move. And so, but I'm walking with my dad, and I see something, probably the video game store, and I'm looking, and all of a sudden I realize dad's gone. I had no idea where he was. And I panicked like any kid does. You start panicking. Where's dad? Where's dad? And I'm lost. And I look across and right in front of one of the, might have been the B. Dalton bookstore or the, or the store that smells funny, Bed Bath & Beyond. Uh, I, I see someone that looks like my dad. So I run up and I grab that person's hand and I walk with them. And this person was kind because they looked down and went, are you lost? And I looked up and went, ah, you're not my dad. Uh, we do that. And this person returned me to my dad. My dad was really right behind me. He did this. He would just watch and see what I did. Um, but he, he liked to give tricks. It was fun. Uh, I'm fine. Therapist talked about it. We're good. But here's the thing. Most of us get lost in the melee of our world. And so we start grabbing on to other people's hands pretty soon that hand's going to lead you in the wrong direction. Some of us need to take pay attention to whose hand we're grabbing because when it comes down to it, we don't belong to that person and they're going to lead us to a place we don't want to be, a place where we shouldn't go to people we don't belong. And we've allowed ourselves over the past few years or maybe longer than that to be led astray by ideologies and people and thoughts and bad theology and the absence of scripture. And we've taken ourselves out of the game because we've forgotten whose we are. And so this letter to John is a stark reminder to say, hey, whose hand are you grabbing? Who do you belong to? And since you belong to this person, there's a certain way of life that should stem from it. Live like you belong here. And so are there areas in your life as you take stock in who you are where you've grabbed onto the wrong hand? And you might think it's right, but you're walking far away from who you're supposed to be. Are there areas in your life where you're allowing something else or someone else or some other thought to transform you? And as you look at your life, look at the fruit that's come of it. Is it representative of who you belong to? You know, there's, uh, when we were flying in, you fly into Seattle and you fly out, you take, sometimes the pilot gives you the, the aerial tour, which is really cool. And if you have a window seat, which I cram myself into sometimes, you can look down and you see these big old ocean freighters coming in. And oftentimes it looks like they're staying still because they're so big and you're like, wow, I don't, I don't, what, what is that thing? And where is it going? The key to find out is look behind it. 
Is it moving? Where, where is its wake? And as you look at the way of your life, look behind you. Is it a trail of carnage or is it a trail of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control and goodness? How do you know if you're walking with Christ? How do you know if you're living to whom you belong to? Look at your fruits. And if the fruits don't match up to the person of Jesus, you're holding on to the wrong hand. It's time to change hands. It's time to get back to whom you belong. His name is written on your heart like Buzz's was written, the Andy's was written on the back of, of, of Buzz's shoe. You belong to him. You've been paid for with the blood of Christ. You're in his family. You are his child. Let's look like our father. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you love us beyond anything we could ever ask or imagine. You care for us. You are a good father. And Lord, we confess, I confess that there are areas in my life where I've grabbed onto the wrong hand and I've led, let other things lead me. And Lord, today I want to let go of those. And so God, maybe show us the hands that we're holding onto instead of yours. May you lead us away from those lives. May we pursue holiness. Not because we're trying to earn your approval, but because we already have it. Because we've seen a picture of what we'll look like in the future. And we want to live like that now. Completely loved, completely secure, completely whole as your child. May we pursue you. We're no longer slaves to sin. Sin has no hold on us anymore. That name's been erased. We are your children. We thank you for this. Today, communion is available on my right, your left. There's a gluten-free option, and then there's the bread that you can dip in the juice. Uh, Perhaps take a moment. Examine your life. Where's the areas you're holding on to the wrong hand? And today, communion can be a, a representation of you letting go of that and coming to the cross and saying, I'm going to allow the cross of Christ to shape me instead of anything else. Amen.